you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you, uh, in the seats in front of you there should be a black pew Bible, and those black Bibles are yours to take if you don't own a Bible, and I would encourage you to open it and follow along. I think you'll be helped to see that what I'm about to share with you is not my idea, and it comes from the Holy Word of God. We've been studying this letter that Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, a historical man that lived and walked this earth with Jesus Christ. Peter has written a letter to various people spread out all over what we now call the Middle East. And in this area, there is much suffering, and Peter's main hope is to give them the hope of Christ, that they will persevere and endure suffering. For those of you that have been following along, ever since February, we have hit that theme repeatedly. And now we turn a corner in our letter, in our study, concluding comments, but we don't entirely leave the theme of suffering. It should be obvious to you, even if you've not been with us for the last several weeks. Exile is the word used to describe what it's like to live as a Christian in this world. Exile is displacement. It should not be at home or at peace. It is to have a longing for settledness. Exile is difficult. Emotionally difficult and sometimes physically. Therefore, to help you with your difficulties, to encourage you in your exile, Peter turns to shepherds. You need a shepherd, Jesus Christ. You need under-shepherds, in the local church. And you need humility to submit yourself to Jesus Christ by submitting to them. If I were to sum up the text, that would be one way to do it. You need a shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you also need under shepherds in the local church, pastors, elders. And you need humility to submit to them for your good and God's glory. That's what we're about to find in this passage, so follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." The grass withers and the flowers fade, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. But then he states, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. In a sentence, what I just read for you is that you need a shepherd to endure exile. You need the chief shepherd. Furthermore, you need under shepherds, elders, pastors. And you need humility in order to submit yourself to them. I think that's a faithful summary of our text and how it fits within the context of exile and suffering. It's hard 
So you need help. Supremely, help comes in the person of Christ. Secondarily, Christ has appointed elders, pastors, teachers to also point the way forward in this fiery ordeal. And there will be times where you might think, I don't know. I don't like this. I don't think I should go that direction. And under shepherds who, like a faithful shepherd would do, takes a wandering sheep and says, let's go through the valley. However, in this sermon, with where we're at in the life of our church, I thought it would be helpful to, instead of unpacking that big idea line by line, to give you three lessons about local church leadership that will be very pointed and hopefully helpful for encouraging us, instructing us, and helping us toward obedience. Three lessons about local church leadership from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. First, Peter was a fellow pastor. He was not the first pope. I don't know if you knew this, but the Roman Catholic Church has officially taught that Peter is the first ever appointed pope. A practical takeaway from our text is that a church should have a plurality of elders leading the church and that we do not submit ourselves to a single authoritative man, woman, person, because we have one chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the doctrine of the Pope is not supported, especially by verse 1. Notice, Peter does not see himself as above the other pastor elders in the early church. Verse 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. If you follow his logic, he is saying, I have a charge to you, but I don't say this as one who is a superior, but as one who is your companion beside you, fellow companion elder. And as a fellow elder, notice that what's true of Peter, his witnessing the sufferings of Christ, is also true of them as a fellow elder and as a fellow witnesser of the sufferings of Christ. And therefore, the entire sentence is about the commonality that Peter and all of the early church elders had. So what makes Peter different? Why did he write this and we treat this as holy scripture? And the answer is because the word witness here has a double meaning. Peter was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his physical human body, sat Peter down and commissioned him for apostolic service. Presumably, these scattered Christians all around the Roman Empire, they were not visible witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a distinction between capital A, apostle, commissioned by Jesus, delegated to teach the gospel as taught as an early disciple, and then as an author of Holy Scripture. These other fellow elders are equal in their eldering, but there is a slight difference between apostolic Peter and these brothers. Look actually in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say to my fellow apostles. Because in that sense, I think that'd be misleading. There is a distinction, but it's not one that elevates Peter to the status of the supreme leader and ruler over the entire churches that exists in the empire. 
the main place that Roman Catholics support the doctrine of Peter being the first pope is from Matthew chapter 16. If you'd like, jot that down. Read Matthew chapter 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, and Peter says, on this rock I will build my church, and therefore, that's where it comes from. On this rock, play on words, Peter's name means rock, so on the profession that Peter just made, Christ will build his church on Peter. And therefore, there is an understanding that Peter's the first pope. Interestingly enough, just two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus explains what he means. He says that when there's a matter of authoritative decision-making, you should take it to the entire church assembly and not to one single individual man. It would seem odd then if Peter's the first pope. Why doesn't Jesus himself say, you're the first pope, and if there's a matter of dispute, take it to Peter. He's the highest supreme court. He's the highest authority in the land. It's precisely what Jesus doesn't do. And what our text shows is that Peter is saying, I'm another fellow elder. Even though commissioned by Jesus as a public eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ and commissioned by that resurrected Christ, I am just another fellow elder. And this, my friends, leads us to our first practical takeaway. A healthy, biblical, local church should have elders. Emphasis on the S, because here we have another case where the term elders is used. And every single time it's talking about leaders in the church, it is always and without exception in the plural, not the singular. A healthy biblical church, here's your takeaway, is not led by one man. There should never be a church or a governing body where one person has all the power of the keys of the kingdom of God that rules over and tells people what to do. That's nowhere in the Holy Scriptures. And this is one specific evidence of that. So I would encourage all of you as a very practical takeaway, A, don't join a church that submits to a senior leadership with one person above it, whether it's a solo senior pastor of a local Baptist church, whether it's a non-denominational church and basically one guy has all the power and authority. Stay away. That's, that's warning flag. Danger. Danger. Uh, don't join the Roman Catholic Church and submit yourself ultimately to the Pope. He is not the authoritative leader over all churches in the world. And in this case, I think it would just be useful for you to pray that if you're not already a member of Embassy Church, who are your elders? Who are you submitting yourself to? Anybody? Is it me? Do I know that? The reason we do church membership and have classes and have conversations and interviews is because I'd just like to answer that simple question. You might come on a Sunday, but do you actually go around and tell, oh, Pastor Phil's my pastor, and I've never been told that by you, or we've never had that conversation. Membership is simply about clarifying, what's this relationship here? I'm happy for you to come and visit Embassy Church and hear the teaching of God's Word, but I'd really like you to submit to the Scriptures, because that's what teaching the Word's all about. And to submit to the Scriptures is to submit yourself to some sort of group, not single person, but group of elders. And so each church, if it's rightly ordered, has multiple elders, at least two, plural, perhaps ten. I think at Embassy, we could be served by hopefully getting more. Four or five would be fantastic with the size of our church. So, for all of you who are members of this church, I think the most important takeaway, and Etienne said this recently, the pressing need of Embassy Church right now is for earnest prayer for God to appoint more elders where we have unity as a church to identify men who are qualified for ministry so that we have elders in the plural. 
Peter was a fellow pastor, not the first pope. We should have multiple elders if we're rightly ordering our local church. Pray toward that end. Order your life in that way. Secondly, what does an elder look like? What should we be praying for? What should we be looking for? Me, myself, what should I be looking for as I look around our church, as I get to know the men in our church? Point two, lesson two, biblical churches are supposed to be led by humble pastors who are willing witnesses of suffering, not hierarchical patriarchs who are greedy for privilege, power, praise, or prestige. Biblical churches, healthy churches, are supposed to be. The norm, the pattern, is that they would have multiple elders and that they would be humble pastors. The reason I say supposed to be is because not only does 1 Peter give us specific instructions for what an elder should be like, therefore rightly telling us what an elder does and doesn't look like, but also because it's consistent with everything that's in the New Testament. Every key idea that I'm about to unpack in point two could be unpacked in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, or Titus chapter 1, or what Mike read for us in Acts chapter 20. Elders are humble men willing to serve, not for greedy gain or domineering power, but to lay down their life for the sheep, just like their master Jesus did. And that's the big idea of what an elder should look like. Godly Christ-like character with an ability to teach faithfully the whole counsel of God and deliver that week in and week out. And I think what we want to do then is just walk through this and realize that the Bible has given us instructions. Sure, maybe every little detail of how we order our church isn't laid out in the Bible to the little t, but the clear ordering of biblical elders leading the church and what those elders should look like is not unclear. Look down at our text. They should be humble, the big idea of point two says. Humble. Yeah. Look at the way verse five says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. Now I'm talking about all of you, whether you're an elder or you're a younger person in the church. And I think that younger does not mean by age, but by maturity. Elder is the word for older, mature person. It's a general word, like old man. But here it's used as a title, a title that is giving one kind of image. So for example, let's play a little game. I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank, and then you are going to do this two times. Ready? Who is the President of the United States? Joe Biden. That's the blank. Joe Biden. Correct. You passed. Second question. Who is the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army? Answer? Joe Biden. Wait. Which is it? Is he the President of the United States or is he the Commander-in-Chief? In this same way, the words pastor, overseer, and elder are all talking about the same exact position or office, but using three different terms. And in fact, what's so crazy about our text is that Peter mashes all of them together in five verses. For example, verse 1. I exhort the older, mature ones among you as a fellow older, mature elder. 
and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then here's our word, shepherd, pastor is the Greek word behind it. Where we get the word, Pastor Phil, how are you doing today? Pastor is the word shepherd in Greek. So, shepherd Phil, Pastor Phil, it doesn't matter in English. The point is, I want you to realize that shepherding is the work of eldering. Same thing. Being the commander-in-chief is being the president of the United States. You might use a different term, but you're talking about the same person. Keep reading. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then notice this, exercising oversight. That's the other third term, overseer. And this is where we get, if you've ever been around churches, the word bishop. It means episkopos. It means to be over and then scoping. Episcope. You oversee the flock of God. So the word bishop or overseer is just one more term to talk about the same office of leaders in a local church. So whether you want to call me Bishop Phil, Pastor Phil, Shepherd Phil, Elder Phil, Presbyterian Phil, Episcopos Phil, Greek, English, we're all talking about the same thing. I prefer pastor, but hopefully you get the point. These men should be mature enough, which is they've been a Christian long enough. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3. They didn't just become a Christian. They're not new in their faith. That's what elder is connotating. That's the image you should have. Somebody that's been a Christian a while. Secondly, they should be shepherds. They should care. They should have oversight and look around and care about others and do so with the word and with prayer. And so this is the picture of what pastors are like. They are humble, just like the rest of the whole church should be humble. Likewise, all of you should have humility. And you should have the humility to lay down your life and serve and suffer for the sheep because that's precisely the example that you are called to lead. Did you see that he says, do this without domineering over those in your charge in verse 3, but set an example for the flock? And I wondered, what's the example? Well, we could say something bland and broad, and we could say, the example is love. I think that's true. I think I should be loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and be an example of love for God. Praying, reading my Bible, loving church, loving you, love one another. I think the example he's talking about is the reason why this section comes right after chapter 4. Look with me where he left off, verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if you drop up to verse 12, you'll see, beloved, don't be surprised by this fiery trial, this test that's going to come upon you. It's not strange. You should be ready for it. You should be expecting it. And I think when we get to chapter 5, Peter's saying this. Elders, you're first. When the fiery ordeal comes through the door of the church, you should be the first men that feel the burn. You're the ones that are going to feel the brunt of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of that purification in the church. Just think about the number of stories of underground churches in Romania or China or places around the world where they are violently burning down church buildings in India right now. Do you know who they go for first? The pastors. The elders. Doesn't it make sense then? Judgment will begin with the household of God. Therefore, elders, what are you in this for? 
Why'd you sign up to be an elder? You should have signed up. You should not have been forced or, or compelled or somebody put, put your arm behind your back. Be an elder. Somebody manipulated you? Are you out for money? No. That's not what an elder is. An elder is a humble man willing to suffer and to serve and be the one to say, I'll take on the brunt of the suffering and I'll be maligned. I'll be hurt because I want to protect the sheep. Do you see the difference between that and so many models of pastoral ministry around America? I think it's pretty clear, obviously. There's a lot of people that want money, book deals, touring around, flying on airplanes, and that's not even the prosperity ones. The ones that have a false gospel, some of them have the true gospel but are still out for shameful gain, are biting the sheep, aren't serving the sheep. They want power, prestige. Pastors should be willing to suffer. They are witnesses of Christ's suffering and their life should give witness testimony of Christ's sufferings. Look back at verse 1. I think this is a very important thing for you to get. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and, here's the Greek word behind witness, and as a martyr of the sufferings of Christ. Martyrdom, martus. I think when he's putting them in the same category, he's saying, I'm a fellow elder and I am a fellow witness that you and I, we are going to witness with our word and we are going to witness with our life that we are in the business of talking about the sufferings of Jesus. We proclaim it in our gospel preaching, but we proclaim it with our lives, willing to lay down our lives for God's flock. I hope it's obvious to you from the text that pastors are humble shepherds, willing to lay down their lives to serve and to suffer, leading, setting the example, not domineering. So, practical application. I already talked about the Pope, and I thought, some of you, that might be kind of edgy. Well, here we go. And I don't mean this to just be edgy. I really mean this to be very pastorally helpful. If you're unaware, Baptist churches, especially this month, if you've been on social media, you might be aware, have been debating vigorously, should women serve as pastors? I think our text points out something very helpful, not to settle the conversation, but for how to have the conversation. Here's my practical pastoral takeaway based on what we just saw on what pastors should be like. It does not specifically say necessarily men alone should be pastors. Are we all on the same page here? 1 Peter 5 does not say what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority over a man. It doesn't say that. Paul says that. We're not studying Paul. What I want you to think about is based on the model and the message of the kind of person that the elder should be. If you're going to engage in the conversation of women pastors, do not make the mistake that has been happening in these conversations. And I quote, from a prominent scholar and Bible teacher and author who has published a book talking about why women should be pastors. They write, all of the members of the church that are not elders are secondary and when men trying to prevent women from serving in the church, they are being cast as less significant in the church. End quote. That's a quote from a prominent theologian scholar writing on this debate, should women be pastors. Do you discern the problem with the quote? 
Let me read it one more time. A non-leader in the church, a general ordinary member, is secondary, and when men try to prevent women from serving in the church, the women are being cast as less significant. That presumes worldly definitions of what it means to be a leader. It does not embrace Jesus' upside-down reversal that the first will be last. That if you want to be great, then get on your knees and wash feet. Be a servant. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. Ladies, and I mean this sincerely, we already have decided as a church in our statement of faith that we do not believe you should be an elder or pastor. You can serve as a deacon. You can be a member. But make no mistake about it. May there be 100% unity in the membership of our church. That is not second-class citizenship. And if you have the desire to serve as an elder, I would just suggest to you that it is not the desire to have power and prestige because that's not what an elder should be. So if there's a, a debate or battle or a desire of like, well, I feel like I'm being left out. Being left out on what? Dying? Being left out on serving? Being left out on being in the front lines? Is, is, that, is that what you're signing up for? And, and I mean this to just say, I don't think that's the way the conversation has been had. As I listen to it, let me provide one more quote. Same author. Male leadership in the church is a blind pursuit of maintaining control over women. End quote. Male-only leadership in the church is a blind pursuit of maintaining control over women. End quote. This can only happen, friends, if you have a church that views leaders in the church as domineering and hungry for power and control. Is local church leadership, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, supposed to be about domineering power and control? Yes or no? No. But Pastor Phil, yes, it's supposed to be that way, but you have to admit, oftentimes churches are filled with hungry, powerful men that want to domineer over women and other men. I concede the point. But do you want to have this kind of conversation about men and women in church leadership based on the error of what we should be doing or based upon the truth of the clear teaching of what an elder should look like? Let's do the Bible and not try and fix errors with more errors. I sadly admit, too often, I have observed and seen and heard countless stories of church leaders who look more like the world instead of listening to Christ and do not have an example of Christ-like humility, service, and sacrifice. Embassy Church, let's begin with the Bible, let's take our cues from Christ, and let's talk about church leadership from Scripture and have the biblical solution to hierarchy, namely, humility. The solution to a hierarchical, patriarchical, proud, hungry, domineering leader is to remove them and not appoint any of them that smell or sniff at all like they might be in it for some kind of shameful game. And I hope it's evident to all of you that are members of this church, that buck stops not just with me and Etienne. That is our collective responsibility to affirm whoever might be put forward as an elder. Do they look like this? Are they humble men, eager, willing, to serve, to suffer, to die for the sheep. I don't think that's 
a high bar, I think that just is the bar. Embassy Church, let's be faithful. Let's be faithful in our decisions, in our members' meetings about who should be shepherds underneath our chief shepherd. But lastly, the third, most important, the most incredibly comforting and encouraging lesson that you could get from this text is that the church of Jesus Christ is a glorious fellowship of God's flock with Jesus Christ serving as our chief shepherd. The church, it is a glorious fellowship. Pause. Unpack that. The church, there is no hobby, no outside of work time that you could devote yourself to that will be more glorious than the church. I know that it's like, well, that's what you're supposed to say, Pastor Phil. You're the pastor. It's your job. It's like going to the dentist and they say, kind of need to brush your teeth better. Time to floss. Pastor's saying we should commit to church, be more involved. But the gap between clean teeth and the glory that could be shared, I feel like it's fitting for me to point out what Peter says one more time in our text. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a koinonia partaker, participant, sharer, fellowship in the glory that is going to be revealed. The fellow elders with Peter, the church, believers are fellowshipping a glorious fellowship. That's the word partaker. We talked about it last week, and it appears again this week. Koinonia. It's a word that has multiple definitions. And here is a second way it's translated in the matter of a few verses. If you look back up in verse 13 of chapter 4, but rejoice insofar as you share koinonia, share in Christ's sufferings. A kind of sharing, a kind of fellowship, a kind of intimate bond. This is what we talk about in the gospel teaching in the New Testament of union with Christ. What is Christ's is yours. Therefore, his sufferings are your sufferings. His glory is your glory. His victory over death is your victory over death. If you would count yourself as one who has repented of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the sufferings of Christ as your sufferings and received the announcement that those who share in those sufferings also share in his glory. Do you see how stuck Peter is on this idea of suffering and glory? Well, here it is again in chapter 5. Elders are those who are witness to the sufferings of Christ, but they are also those who are koinonia, united to, in fellowship, in intimate way with Christ of the glory that is going to be revealed when the chief shepherd returns, that is, Jesus Christ. Do you have a personal relationship with the chief shepherd? If today was a tragic day and you didn't make it home alive, do you know what would happen when the glorious appearing before the throne of God, before the judgment seat of Christ, what the basis of your salvation and judgment will be? The answer of the Bible is that we all are guilty of sin. 
We deserve condemnation, punishment. The eternal condemnation of God is a fitting punishment for the person we have sinned against. The more worthy the person, the higher the penalty of the crime. If you go knock on my door and threaten to steal something and do something to me, there will be a certain penalty. But go do that to President Joe Biden on the White House, you won't make it past the guards at the fence. And you'll be committed with some kind of treason. You'll be locked up immediately. Do you see the difference? We have offended a holy and righteous God, and therefore it is fitting and right because of how holy and pure and lovely he is that you would stiff arm him and his wisdom and say, no, I'll take it from here. I'll do life my way. That's what all of us did when we were born into this world, and our sin is evidence that we like to do it our way. Submit yourself to not just the chief shepherd, but the local church's teaching to protect you from yourself, from your sin. Clothe yourself with humility and find a place where they will love you so fiercely that if you're a wandering sheep, they will run after that one lost sheep and leave the 99 just like Jesus commanded us to. This is the glorious fellowship of God's flock. Don't you love that he just adds that little line? God's flock, the flock of God. As a practical takeaway on this point, I'm not going to like really get upset, but in general, it'd probably be better if you don't call this Phil's church. It's not. It's God's flock. It's Christ's church. He is our chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor, the shepherd that oversees all of us. I will give an account to him. And my aim is to point to him again and again. I'm hoping that some of you will be renewed in your commitment and your desire to say, wow, the local church, it is glorious. This kind of fellowship that we can have here on a weekly basis on Sundays, but then throughout the week, it is unlike anything else that the world has to offer. I have tasted and seen the goodness of that participation. And I'm not just the dentist telling you it's time to floss your teeth. I'm telling you. Take me up on it. Do you think it'll deliver? This koinonia, this participation in Christ, this union with him, it'll be richer, more satisfying, the best decision you've ever made. To be baptized, as Jack's about to do. To become a member of a church, but not just become a member. To invest deeply in this fellowship, submitting yourself with all humility. I pray that God would lead each of you in response to what you've heard in his word. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, on the basis of the blood of Jesus, our chief shepherd, we ask now for the Holy Spirit to give us much grace, to discern what we have heard from your word, to give us clarity and insight about what it should look like for us to have elders at embassy. Oh God, would you raise up men in this church, men who are humble, men who are servants, men who are willing to suffer, men who are like Paul in Acts chapter 20 and count their lives as nothing. Lord, I pray that we would be able to identify those men and that you would give us more of them. I pray that our church would be 
teeming, abounding, rich, with shepherds that look like our chief shepherd, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here that's not a member of a local church and, and has not clarified with someone, hey, will you be my pastor? Will you shepherd me? Will you help me follow Jesus? I pray that you help them see the, the practical relevance of this in their spiritual life. Lord, I want to ask for those of the people that are here that don't know Christ, that they would in, end their rebellion against you. I want to pray that your spirit would open their eyes and their heart to help them see how glorious and good the church is, how glorious and good the gospel is. Lord, lead us each to repentance and faith in a way that would be appropriate for where we're at in our discipleship in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.